Hello, welcome to the Friedland Law Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Friedland, along with my co-host, Phil Friedland, my colleague and also my father. And today we're going to be discussing the recent case of Eyeball Networks. Eyeball Networks is an interesting case which looks at the interaction between Section 160 and what we in the tax world call a related party butterfly. So first I'm going to start with a brief overview of the case and then we'll get into some discussion. Eyeball Networks was in, in a corporation incorporated for the sole purpose of receiving assets on a tax-deferred basis from an existing company. The sole short shareholder, Mr. Pichet, was involved in the gaming industry and had certain technology. There was a kind of, you might say, moral taint associated with that industry, so they thought to better exploit the technology, they were going to transfer it to a new corporation. And so they incorporated this new corporation, which I'm going to call Nuco from now, from now forward, and the old company I'm going to call Oldco. So they incorporate this new company, and Mr. Pichet essentially transfers shares of the old company to the new company, equal to the sort of existing value of the old company. And so Mr. Pichet ends up being the share, sole shareholder of Nuco. So under the relevant share purchase agreements and the article provisions, there's symmetrical value of all these shares we're dealing with as part of the related party butterfly. So if you see one set of shares and a corresponding other set of shares, the face value is equal. So after they transfer the shares of Oldco to Nuco, Nuco then goes and buys the assets from Oldco for shares and the assumption of liabilities. So again, you get a symmetrical transfer. And so now what you have is Nuco owning the assets of Oldco, and there's a set of intercorporate shares, and Mr. Pichet is the sole shareholder of Nuco. Then what happens is, is that the two sets of shares get redeemed. So the two sets of shares with equal face value get mutually redeemed, and you end up with two notes of equal face value. They then enter into what's referred to as a debt cancellation agreement, which basically says, Old Co, you're indebted to me. New Co, I'm indebted to you. Set off the debt. And so what happens is, is that all those assets that were formerly in Old Co end up in New Co. The debts are set off and you get the two companies going their separate ways. And ideally, this all happens on a tax deferred basis. And in this case, they didn't challenge it. But what you have in this specific case is unknown to Mr. Pichet, Old Co had a tax debt. And so what happened is, is that after this butterfly happens, in fact, quite a long while after this has happened, the CRA reassesses Old Co for an unknown corporate tax debt. But unfortunately, the butterfly had already happened. But what the way 160 works is that the tax debt is created in the year that the tax arises. So even though they didn't find about it till later, the tax debt was eligible in that year, meaning that it arose in that year. So when they did that butterfly, the CRA took the position that the tax got tax debt got transferred as a result of one or other of these transfers. And so a couple of arguments were presented. The first thing we looked at is that the minister basically tried to say, you know, because there's sort of broad charging language in Section 160 that you got a related company, a related person, Nuco, and, an, and another related company, Oldco, and you've had a transfer of assets and they just say basically there's broad charging language, collapse all the steps, and take the position that this tax get got transferred. The other position was, no, you got to look at each transfer at each point in time and basically say, was there adequate consideration at each relevant transfer point? And the court looks at the principles of statutory interpretation, every lawyer's favorite, text context purpose, and decides that no, the correct approach is to look at each and every transfer and see that whenever Nuco buys an asset, does it give Oldco equal fair market value consideration? And so it looks at all the transfers, and the court is willing to accept that with respect to the shares, you're getting 
equal fair market value consideration because of those share purchase agreements and price adjustment clauses, wherever they may be. But then it looks to these notes. And if you remember the last step where they set off the notes, this debt cancellation agreement, you have the setting off of the two notes. And the court basically says, hey, this old co has no assets at the time these debts are set off. So to what degree does this old code note have value when the company isn't backed by assets and basically says, well, the value of this note has to be nominal. So when they did that debt transfer agreement, that debt cancellation agreement, you essentially have, in the court's view, they collapse the legal steps. So the debt cancellation agreement, in fact, may not be a transfer and that's something we're going to get into later. But the real question for the court was, is that did NUCO give equal value when it surrendered its old co note as part of that debt cancellation agreement. And the court said no, because old co wasn't backed by assets. And I think we'll get into this, and I think that's wrong. But because there wasn't equal consideration at that point, doing this point in time analysis with respect to section 160, that tax debt gets transferred. And so on that basis, Eyeball Networks loses the case. The tax debt gets transferred as part of this related party butterfly. And I think we're going to get into this in this discussion. but. I guess there's three main points that come out of this case. What is the appropriate method of interpreting Section 160? Can you take a sort of collapsed economic substance-based approach where you just look at all of the steps on a net basis? The court rejected that. Was that correct? The second question is, what is the fair market value of that old co-note in light of the fact that it didn't really have assets at the time? but I think what one of the key points is, is that new, it had a note issued by Nuco that did actually have assets. And finally, we're going to, get look, we're going to look at that debt cancellation agreement, which is the actual legal mechanics by which Oldco and Nuco set off each other's debts. You know, was that actually a transfer? Because really, legally speaking, they didn't transfer anything to each other. You have a mutual acknowledgement of indebtedness and cancellation. So now I'm going to bring you in, Phil. So let's start with the first issue. What do you think about the Nuco note? What was its value? Well, as 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 you mentioned, the um, the the tax court justice took the view that the old co note was nominal because it no had no assets in in the in the justice's view had no assets to back that note. Uh, with all with all due respect to the judge, the justice, uh, in fact, old co actually held the new co note. So at that point in time, uh, new co. Owed old co the same amount that old co held new co, so uh, so in that sense uh, the old co note did have value. I guess one of the questions is what is the value? Because if you look at the the relevant part of section 160, you know that you're talking about was the consideration uh, <clears throat> for old co's transfer. Uh, the consideration received equal in value. And this is where you get into the issue of fair market value at the time that they did the transaction. Because what's, what's very important is the fact that at the time they did the transaction, no one was aware of this unknown tax debt uh, that, that Old Co. Uh, owed to the, to the government of Canada. And, and I guess one of the fundamental questions is, 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 is fair market value. And I and think you've got actually a little quote there that actually sets out what fair market value is. So why don't you go and read that in? So, so this is from, uh, I think, a reasonably well-known case called Husky Oil LTD uh, v. Canada, which is in the 90, 1995 Dominion tax cases, where 
the justice said, and I think this is very important to what might happen on appeal, uh, the now firmly established meaning respecting fair market value is that it reflects the highest price available in an open and unrestricted market between informed and prudent parties, each acting at arm's length and under no, co no compulsion to act, expressed in terms of cash. Value is to be determined as at a specific point in time and is a function of facts known and forecasts made only as that, as that as at that point in time. And that's very important to the question of value because it's only subsequent to the transaction having occurred that, that the parties discovered that the, this tax debt existed. So that, that will be, I think, an important issue for the Federal Court of Appeal to look at because you're looking at, at fair market value several years earlier earlier to when the tax debt became discovered and the, and the CRA introduced uh, or I uh, issued the notices of reassessment. And I think that's a critical point because when you think about it and you're asking the question of what's the fair market value of this note, you're, ask you're asking a question which is a counterfactual, which is what a third party would have paid for this note put into a similar position, but basically only having the information at the time. And since we're doing a point in time test, what would they have paid at that point when they exchanged the notes? The question is if you have an undisclosed tax debt, what is the value of that note? So one of the points that came out of our discussion, that came out of part of writing an article on this case is, is that so it's sort of a creditor's rights issue. So firstly, it's that you have a purchaser that doesn't know that this tax liability exists. And of course, when we've been saying as part of these discussions, the tax debt is transferred, what we mean is the liability is transferred. Section 160 actually transfers the tax liability. It doesn't literally transfer the tax debt. It transfers the liability by the, essentially the difference between the consideration you receive and what you get back. And so in this case, you've got to note what's its value. The buyer doesn't really have information regarding this debt and what would they pay? And I don't know if you have any thoughts about the fact that it's undisclosed at the time. How does that affect its value? Well, that's back to the, uh, to the uh, meaning of fair market value, which is a point in time test and essentially what did the participants in an arm's length situation would have paid given the facts at the time. Um, and the, 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 the un, unknown tax debt would not have come into those discussions, uh, which would have been unknown. I guess the one point is, is for example, in, a, in an arm's length, for example, share purchase transaction, there, there would be uh, the vendor would be giving representations and warranties uh, about certain aspects of the corporation, which, which means that if there were some undisclosed uh, contingencies or debts, which then came to light later on and cost the purchaser or the corporation that the purchaser now owns a certain amount of funds, then the vendor would be obligated to indemnify, indemnify the purchaser for, for that loss. But it doesn't, in a sense, um, change the fair market value, I would think. And I, I think that's a good point. And I think it's at least arguable that because the tax debt is sort of unknown at the time of the transaction, that even though theoretically it can transfer as part of 160, the fair market value of the note might not be affected. So the tax liability might not transfer as part of this related party butterfly. And then I think it'll be interesting to see as part of the appeal that goes on if this point gets raised or if they bring in experts regarding fair market value, what they say the value of this note is. I think personally the argument that the note isn't worth anything because old code doesn't have any assets 
to me that seems wrong because it can go and realize on Nuco's assets from its note on Nuco. So it's got to be worth something. It's not nominal. It's just what, what the value is. Now, the critical point, I think, with 160 is that it's the difference between the consideration you give and what you get back that determines how much of the tax liability transfers. So if the note is reduced in value by the precise amount of the tax debt, well, then it doesn't matter that it's worth something. I think you'll still get the liability moving or at least, let's say, being transferred to the other company, or the, at least that's one view you could take out of it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, it, it seems to me, to, since the provision itself talks about fair market value, and it's at a particular point in time, and, at, and in this particular case, it's at a point in time when the parties were unaware of this tax debt, and particularly if they're arm's length, and since the test itself is an arm's length test, uh, it seems to me that my guess would be that a good argument can be made that you would not take account of that tax debt, unknown tax debt, uh, at the time at that time in determining fair market value. So I think there, I, I would guess that the appellants, i.e., the taxpayer, will be probably making that argument to the federal court of appeal. And I would agree. I think that's one of the likely arguments. I think the two arguments that are going to get raised are one, you know this note clearly isn't nominal value, and two, you know, the fact that there's this tax debt shouldn't really impair the value of the note. And then it gets, we get to the question of this debt cancellation agreement itself, because the reality with this is, is that, you know, the court sort of looks through these steps that resulted in the mutual debt cancellation as part of this debt cancellation agreement and says, basically, in substance, you have Old Co. surrendering to New Co. its debt in exchange for New Co. surrendering its debt to Old Co. And in, basically, the nub and rub of it is that this is a transfer. And so, do you think this is a transfer? Because the legal form isn't a transfer. And why is it we had the courts taking the view that this is in substance a transfer when the legal documents suggest it might not be? Well, the, I mean, that's an interesting point, and uh, I guess a couple of thing, a couple of thoughts. One is, I think if you look at case law. Um, the, 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 the term transfer has been given a very broad interpretation. So um, it is possible that the Federal Court of Appeal might take the view that even though the, the document itself doesn't really result in any kind of transfer, I don't think, because all it does is essentially what a set-off does, and, and the law of set-off actually is quite complicated, it's a whole separate area, uh, results in, in both debts, both amounts owing on the notes, being reduced and eliminated. But the notes themselves, I don't think, are effectively transferred anywhere legally. The liability under each note is effectively reduced from what's owing to nil in this case. So I think, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, how the Federal Court of Appeal uh, uh, approaches this. And, it, and it's an interesting question because you see at two points in this case that you get these kind of economic substance type arguments where basically the court is, in the case of 160, the minister is initially saying, you know, collapse all the steps and that result is uh, old co and new co go their separate ways with basically new co getting all the assets for nothing. The court rejects that says section 160 is a point in time test, but it does go with this argument that says the debt cancellation agreement is a transfer. And I'd like to know what you think about the argument, the interpretive argument that Section 160 should be analyzed on a net results basis. In my view, that was just completely wrong. And I think even using the textual, contextual, and purposive analysis that 
has been accepted as the mode of tax interpretation for a long time now. I don't know how you get to that result with Section 160. It has pretty clear, precise rules. There's no override that would suggest otherwise. They tried to sort of use the broad charging language, kind of like they did in McDonald. But what do you think of that minister's approach to first the uh, economic substance approach to 160 as, a point in, as opposed to the point in time? And where do you think that these kind of arguments are going to go in the future? Well, I think this is not an unusual approach for uh, CRA to take in trying to take language uh, of a provision and basically use it to expand the circumstances where a particular provision uh, would apply. In this case, the words that they were relying on, which is either directly or indirectly by means of a trust or any or by any other means whatever, appears in the opening phrase, uh, opening part of the provision, um, kind of the preamble to the, to the rules. But when you get to the rules that apply, <clears throat> there's a specific provision that basically states you're measuring fair market value of the property at the time it was transferred versus the fair market value at the time of the consideration being given. So to me, I, I don't, didn't think that the, the, uh, the Crown and the CRA had a very strong argument uh, to say that you could take this net results test. Now this is, I think over time, we've seen more and more of this kind of approach in terms of interpreting tax, taxing, taxing provisions. And it's, it's been a way uh, to expand the application of provisions, perhaps in a way that it may not have necessarily been intended when, when they were drafted. And that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, I would think, although I don't know for sure, is that 160 probably predates the modern approach to statutory interpretation, which I think as I've heard discussions of litigation, how do you apply this new approach to sections that predate this interpretive mode? And of course, as tax lawyers, we don't generally like you know, getting away from the text. Most tax lawyers, I think, prefer to hang pretty closely on the text, but of course we're obligated to consider the two other elements, which is purpose and uh, context. But I think in this case you're right. Unlike in McDonald, where the court was able to succeed with the broader charging language, there's pretty clear overriding sort of specific rules governing when you determine the consideration from the parties flowing and what the value and point in time is. So I think that's right, and I don't, I don't think that that's going to be overturned on appeal, but I guess you don't really know. And I think that brings us to the final segment of this podcast, which is, what's the fallout from this case? First of all, of course, I, we, we know that this is going to appeal and the federal court's going to hear it. So these arguments could go any real direction. You know, I think that probably they're going to lose on the value of the note being nominal, but anything else may be up for grabs. So with that in mind, caveating that the whole ruling could be changed in the next decision, um, we do have... Um, the fact that oh, I think a lot of tax practitioners were using a butterfly in sort of protective uh, fashion, i.e., so you'd have a company where you think there might be something coming up in terms of a tax debt, and you might do a butterfly to transfer property in a way that you think that the tax debt won't follow through through 160. And I think this is casting doubt on that. And I don't know if your what your thoughts are on the use of a so-called protective butterfly are. Well, I think. Um it all go, I mean, I think it all goes back to this issue of fair market value at the time of, of the transfer of property in exchange for other consideration. And it all hinges on, on what the Federal Court of Appeals says on that. 
Um, because if they're prepared to say that you determine the value uh, at that time, ignoring that unknown tax debt, then uh, these these preventive butterflies are are in a better position than if the court doesn't doesn't deal with that or rules unfavorably on it. Um, then, if that if they ruled favorably, then. Uh, you would likely see, um, I guess, some effort, effort by the CRA to, in these situations, to try and determine whether or not, in fact, these butterflies were being done uh, with some knowledge that there was some unknown tax debt. Um, now, there's no, I mean, one other point is, there's, as far as I recall, there's no evidence in the case to indicate that any kind of valuations were done of those notes. And I guess an interesting question, which I, I, I don't know the answer to, is, is to what extent that kind of, of uh, evidence could be introduced to an appeal court. And I think that's a good point. And I, I'm not sure the evidentiary rule on that, but it certainly seems like something that may be a bit of a barrier now that they've gone through the trial phase to try and introduce evidence on, let's call it a question of fact. Is it a question of fact? Is it a question of mixed fact and law? I'll leave that to the litigators to figure out. But I think we can say sort of in a, a sort of a conclusion uh, sort as a sort of conclusion to this case is that I think this case raised a lot of questions about the basics of section 160 how does it apply and also you sort of see an interesting scenario where one of the comments that we've heard is that people didn't anticipate that a butterfly could have 160 attaching to those transfers everyone sort of assumed that the face values would govern I think I know when I read this case I'm like whoa the face values are equal how does this transfer? You gave consideration of equal amount, and you get the tax authority going back and saying, hey, you know, the face values are wrong. There's not enough consideration there. And so I think one of the things as tax practitioners we have to keep in mind is, is that you know, when you do documents and you plug a number in a document, it doesn't mean that it's going to be accepted, especially when you're dealing with questions of fair market value. So I think one of the things that you know, we should take as a learning lesson from this case is that Whenever you're doing documents, you have to keep in mind that the numbers you pick aren't necessarily going to be accepted by the other party, and you have to think about what kind of documentation or what kind of evidence are you going to have to support those numbers in an event of a challenge. And I don't know if you have any further thoughts on that point. Well, um, presumably the uh, there was some value. I don't know. I don't recall in the case offhand to what extent there was a valuation of of the underlying assets. Uh, of old co that were ultimately transferred to new co, um, that would clearly be important. But you should always, um, you know, I guess to the extent you're relying on values, have as as much backup as possible. I think that uh, just one other point is I think that um, what's unusual here, or what I guess came out of the case was, is the notion that there was an unknown tax debt. But because of the way the Section 160 or subsection 160 sub 1 is, is worded, the, the tax debt, which arises several years uh, later, is in respect of the taxation year uh, in which the transfers occurred. And that's where you get your, 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 your problem from the point of view of, of potentially Section 160 applying. Yeah, and, and I agree. And I, I think that's one of the major takeaways. And um, just so we have a little fun on this podcast, uh, do you want to take a gamble at what the outcome's going to be? Do you have any sense of where the Federal Court of Appeal might go on this, on sort of these various points? Do you want to take sort of a final guess at where we're going to end up? Well, I think they're, uh, they're, 
they're, I think they would likely disagree with the tax court judge that the, uh, that the old code note is nominal. Um, I think they're likely to support the conclusion that you, you, it's not a net results test in Section 160. I think the question of, of fair market value, which is, I think, really crucial, I'm not really sure what they're going to do, to be honest. I'm not sure what they're going to be able to do. And, and I agree with that. And I think I would agree that those are the points that this taxpayer is likely to win on. And I think that's the major outstanding point. And I'm just going to be optimistic and say, I think the taxpayer will win. And so that's it for prediction. Of course, we always have to say prediction with court decisions is a mugs game, but we'll see to what extent we were right. And I think that sort of wraps up our discussion of the case. And I think it was an interesting case and I hope you enjoyed it. Well, thank you for tuning in to this, our inaugural episode of the Freedom Law Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast is a companion piece to an article published in Tax for the Owner Manager. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, visit our website, www.freedomlaw.com. We'd be happy to speak with you or to have a conversation by email. So please do reach out. And I think that brings this podcast to a conclusion. So I'd like to thank Phil for appearing with me. And we hope you tune in next time.